This podcast is sponsored by the Copywriter Underground. It's our new membership designed for you to help you attract more clients and hit 10K a month consistently. For more information or to sign up, go to thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts? Ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work. That's what Rob and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 114 as we chat with attorney and founder of the contract shop, Christina Scalera, about the importance of contracts, GDPR and other privacy regulations, what we need to know about trademarks, building and growing more than one online business for creatives, and why she collects abstract art. Welcome, Christina. Hi, guys. All right. Great to have you here. So let's kick this off with your story. How did you end up building the contract shop? Sure. Yeah. So I got out of law school and I landed my dream job. It was perfect. and It was the job that everybody wanted to get and I felt so lucky. But unfortunately, a lot of different things were happening at the same time. And I ended up with a, a couple different health complications and basically had a doctor tell me, something had to give. Um, and the only thing that I could give was my job. So I had to figure out a different way to make a living. And that was where I really stepped into the creative economy that, well, not as it exists today, but what we know of it. And I decided my first foray into this economy would be as a private yoga teacher because I had a friend in DC and she was a former business attorney turned private yoga teacher in DC. And I was living in Atlanta at the time. So I was like, great, I can do that. Um, so she kind of helped me out with that and everything. But long story short, I didn't make any money. Not a big shocker there. It's hard to make money as a yoga teacher. Not impossible, but difficult. And so to pay the bills, I kept doing legal work on the side. So this yoga studio thing wasn't a total wash. I got a lot of clients that were yoga studios in the area that needed different contracts reviewed or um, were doing some licensing, things like that, that I had done in my corporate job. And in the process, I just, I felt like, Maybe you guys have felt this too, but I was feeling that like tug of the the mid 20s, like quarter life crisis, like, okay, I've done all the school, I've done all the things, I've checked all the boxes, what's next? And so I was really on this searching path and kind of stumbled into the the creative world maybe that that you guys are more familiar with as copywriters working with those kinds of creatives. So what I mean by that is like the Rising Tide Society was just starting. I think it was one of their first 700 followers. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. This account has like 500 followers overnight. And then like the next day it had like 20,000. It was so crazy to watch. So just got in really early with them. Went to some conferences like Creative at Heart, Alum with Bonnie Bakhtiari and um, just kind of different making things happen. Like I was just like really searching for some kind of answer and solution. Like what would be what would be what I actually end up doing? And it was at these places that I, I started to meet people. I started to have conversations. I started to talk with people. I started to ask them what their problems were, where they were struggling. And like eventually it would always come out that I was an attorney. And that was when kind of the floodgates opened. So they would ask me all these questions and they would have all these um, just needs. And I was like, wow, this is such an underserved community. This is ridiculous. You know, they they either are up against these big law firms, when you Google, you know, like contract help, you find like a big law firm that costs thousands of dollars to help you, or you find LegalZoom. And I was like, there has to be some kind of in between. And I really looked around and there were a couple of people out there that are doing something similar to what I'm doing, but not many. And I, I felt like I could do it better, honestly. So that was really how the contract shop started is just people asking me like, hey, can you work on this thing? But um, I can't pay you and I can't afford it. And I was like, well, I'm not going to work for free. So what's like an intermediary solution I could give you? <laughs> and that was how the templates kind of came about. So, so you mentioned LegalZoom. And I know a lot of people, and there are others too, um, but I know a lot of people sort of rely on them. Like what is, what's wrong with depending on contracts from LegalZoom as opposed to working directly with an attorney? Or, and you also mentioned, you know, the expense and the hassle of hiring an attorney from a large firm can be tough. Like I know you're fitting sort of in the middle, but help us understand sort of the risks and rewards of the other two options. Yeah, sure. I love this. No one's ever asked me this. Oh, good. <laughs> 
That's why you guys are good copywriters. Uh, yeah. So I don't have a problem with LegalZoom. I think it's a fine solution. My only, I think where I stand out as different and as a better solution is that what I offer to my audience is more tailored to what they're doing. So if you go to LegalZoom from the last time I checked, and I'm not there every day, but um, last time I saw, you know, they had a general independent contractor template. And that was about as close as it got to what you guys would offer as copywriters, for example. Whereas I'm in it every day, like I'm working with copywriters. I'm always desperately looking for new copywriters, FYI, but (laughs) that's a different story. I'm always constantly hiring new employees, independent contractors. And so I'm, I'm like in it with people. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are copywriters. So I'm constantly hearing about the struggles that they have. I have clients who are copywriters. So I'm constantly seeing what they're coming up against. And I'm able to inform my templates with all of that information and feedback in a way that a legal Zoom, I haven't seen, maybe they're doing this now, but I have never seen them uh, be able to do this on such a personal level. And so that's something that I really am proud of about our our products is that they are just so personalized to the industries that they serve. And I'm always updating them, um, maybe in a way that, that like bigger companies would just kind of forget about their products. Like it's done, it's up there, it's running good enough, bye. I'm always in there. I'm always like, how can I make this a better product? And then as far as like big law firms go, I think it's just, I mean, I feel the struggle finding a copywriter, but you guys would probably find the struggle finding an attorney or, you know, maybe you've tried to find a good graphic designer or a good web designer or any kind of service provider. And you know how hard that is if you've ever looked in earnest. It's just, there's better solutions thanks to people like you who are educating their audiences and providing these awesome communities Um, for people like me to reach within and kind of try to find someone. But, you know, to find an attorney, it's a very difficult thing to do because you don't necessarily get to see the end result. And like in the instance of, say, licensing agreements, right? Like you don't really get to see directly how the licensing agreement impacted your business. You know, was that a good attorney? Was it a bad attorney? It's really, really difficult for somebody who's not an attorney to determine. And so, that's where I really like these these templates is because you're the one who's actually delivering them. And so, you know, I can customize them so far, but you can add your voice, you can add your services, you can add your uh, just unique value proposition and special touches to the process. And we try to walk people through and show them how to do that as well when they purchase uh, just as like a little bonus feature. So I think that's the difference between those two other options. So it sounds like you just, you have an intimate understanding of this creative online space that we're all playing in that probably a lot of attorneys don't understand. And that sounds like that's the difference in working with your templates and and even working with you is that you get the space, you get the needs of copywriters and resources like LegalZoom might not. Um, maybe they just haven't targeted us as well yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's just really difficult when you're that kind of company. Um, I know they're privately held, and I just I, I feel like it's it's difficult for them to go to not their board of directors, but like whatever would serve as as something similar. And you know they're the ones who are guiding the ship. Whereas with me, I'm a lot more nimble. I it's just me and then my team. So if I want to pour more effort and heart into one of our products, like our copywriter template is one of our best sellers, I can do that. I can go and I can interview. I'm, I'm really like on the front lines with the copywriters as they're booking their clients. You know, I'm following them on Instagram. I'm, I'm seeing their successes, their failures, their, um, what they're excited about, you know, the, the kinds of rants they go on about their clients. And those are all things that are, are informing what I'm doing. So I just, I don't see it as impossible for a big company like that. I just, it's honestly, I think it's just something they've never thought about. So you're welcome for the idea, LegalZoom. Right, LegalZoom, listen up. So we'll dig into these templates too and the contracts that we need as copywriters that are most important. But I'm really curious to hear more about the first few years in your business because it sounds like you started three years ago or maybe even less than that. And it also sounds like you've taken off quickly and have a team. So I'd like to hear about how you um, you really grew fast. Like what do you think was the one thing you did really well to grow if you can if you can narrow it down <laughs> to just one thing? Yeah. I don't think your listeners are going to like this answer, but I'm just going to be really honest. I invest almost everything that I make back into my business as soon as I can. 
and then some. So I have not been afraid to take on debt. I haven't been afraid to take risks. And it's, I understand not a lot of fiscal, the personal finance bloggers would be like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. But that's really the key to growing fast is just like pouring everything that you make back in your business. Um, so, you know, I love like Mike Michalowicz and his profit first model. And that's definitely something that I want to do, but I very, very intentionally and strategically not followed a model like that. And that will shift next year, but I've wanted to grow fast and I've wanted to pour everything that I could into this business to grow it really quickly. And that's honestly the secret behind it is, you know, spend, I, I've spent a lot of money on copywriters. It's all money well spent. Of course. Um, yeah. I, I've worked with some amazing people like Leona Patch at Punchline and Shanti Zachariasen, um, Ashlyn Carter. And so it just, it's been great to work with these people and they definitely have moved the needle forward, um, particularly in instances where I am just dragging and I just cannot bring myself up out of some funks. I mean, you guys know, you just get in funks with your business sometimes. And um, it's just so amazing to have a community like the one you've cultivated to lean on and just reach out to somebody and be like, guys, I need someone to take this off my plate. And there's someone there. So digging into that specifically uh, for copywriters that's listening is like, okay, then I'm willing to invest in my business because I do want to grow fast. What would you say some of those key investments should be for copywriters? Because you know us well. I mean, we don't really have to invest in other copywriters necessarily, but what were some of the other key investments you made early on? Yeah, I mentioned copywriters because I I actually am a really good copywriter myself. I don't offer services or anything. Um, but like just having somebody to come up with the framework and then I can add my personal stories and voice is probably the most life-giving thing that is happening in my business right now. Um, having, well, uh, other than like having organizational team members. So I have two people on my team that like one is a pure project manager. All she does is make sure that things get done. If we need to hire someone to coordinate tasks or to fulfill tasks, she's the one who's finding those people, um, getting my approval, and then we're hiring them and she's managing them. So that's huge. She's also looking at our PNL every month and um, making sure that we're hitting our target numbers. Uh, her her name is actually Yasmin Kashafi. I shouldn't give away all my my names. You guys are all going to hire no, everyone. Get, give them to us, please. But um, and then the other gal actually, she started as a copywriter for me, and now she just manages all of our content. So I get a lot of asks to do speaking engagements or um, guest blog posts or add bonus presentations to people's courses, things like that. And so she's managing all that in addition to our blog and then any other like guest posts or content that's coming out. And so I think having those three pillars has been really foundational in just giving me time and life and um, creative energy back. And then, you know, I think the other people that I have on my team that are, are like, I'm not trying to diminish anyone's role. I think everybody is so important and I would just cry if anybody left. But, um, you know, just having people to fulfill any kind of role or task that you don't need to be doing. It sounds so cliche, but it's true. Like graphics, you know, I was spending hours on graphic design before I hired a graphic designer and it was like, why, you know, I'm not even that good at it. So getting, just getting those things off your plate and really giving somebody else the opportunity to make money and support their family. Um, those are the things that I think are really important to keep this creative economy going and, give you life back so that you can focus on what you are good at. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, you know, because we work with so many other creative people, it, it's interesting to see people who are struggling to make it in their own businesses, but they're not willing to pay for the same kinds of services that they're hoping that clients will pay for working with them, you know, so it's almost game changing when you're willing to invest in your business that way. Yes. Starting small, I think is a huge component. Like, when I first started, I tried to outsource everything all at once to one person. And that was the biggest mistake ever. I think one of the first things I, after that period, um, one of the first things when I got strategic about outsourcing was the graphic design. Because I was just like, literally, I looked at my calendar, I did like a time tracker exercise. And I was spending upwards of eight hours a day designing freebies and blog graphics and everything like that. And I'm like, wow, I could pay someone like 30 bucks an hour and they would be thrilled to have some work and a client on their plate. And I wouldn't have to do this anymore. And so that was really a game changer. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about contracts. At the contract shop, you guys have lots of contracts. I'm guessing that we don't need all of them, but as copywriters, you know, what what's the baseline? Like, what kinds of contracts do we need to you know really run an effective business? Well, obviously, you need our copywriting contract template, which you guys should go to their show notes to get the link for because they're maybe going to be an affiliate. <laughs> so definitely support our affiliates like that. But yeah, I, I think it's just important for anybody, whether you come to our site or not, to have a couple key component uh, legal documents really in place when you're working with people. And so one thing I, I didn't share, like bad copywriter move on my part, but uh, I didn't share actually the inspiration for what started the contract shop. And it started when I was uh, doing this private yoga thing and and trying to find my way and whatever, but I got two clients that were interested. So I did all the hard work. I put myself out there. I networked. I'm kind of a naturally introverted person. And so it was really difficult for me to do this. So I was really proud of myself. I got out there. I got the clients. But then it came time to send them a contract. And literally two clients willing to pay me thousands of dollars each for private yoga sessions in their home. And I could not send them a contract. It took me two weeks to get something back to them. And by the time they got it from me, because I wanted it to be perfect, right? Like I was doing it in Photoshop and like editing a Word document in Photoshop is just a nightmare. Um, I wanted it to be beautiful. I wanted the content obviously to be perfect because I was an attorney. And they were just looking at me incredulously like, what do you mean? You still, wait, what? You fell off the radar. Like we don't want to work with you. You're flaky. And so that really was the inspiration for me um, because I, I don't want anyone to ever have that experience. You know, if you're new and you're starting out and you have people, you know, when you're first starting, it just feels like you're shouting into the void. And so when it finally catches and you finally have people that are interested in what it is that you're offering, that can be really exciting. But then <laughs> there's also kind of that like, oh, crap moment where you have to realize, what am I going to send to this person? Like, what what happens now? There's no official published guideline or course or degree in onboarding clients. And so to have a resource available for people where they can download a contract and in like 10 minutes or less, they're on their way and working with clients. Um, that was something that I wanted during that time period in my life when I just could not get my ish together. But the key documents I think everybody needs to have, again, whether you get them from me or not, I don't care. I just think you need to have a client contract which is obviously the contract that you send to your potential clients and that they sign. And that is really a list of expectations on both sides of the line. Um, so what you expect from the client and then what the client can expect from you, when those things are going to be delivered, how it's going to happen. So that's the first thing is your client contract. The second thing is any kind of terms and conditions for your website, or if you're selling any kind of online course or digital offering, like you know we sell templates. So maybe you sell some kind of email sequence template or, you know, sales page template, something like that. So if you have anything for sale like that, or if you just have a website, maybe you're not even offering something for sale, it's really important, in my opinion, to have a terms and conditions page on your site. I like to just link this as, you know, the contractshop.com forward slash legal so I can throw it up on any kind of lead pages or ClickFunnels pages or offsite pages. I just know the URL. And the terms and conditions helps to tell your audience what they can and cannot do with your website on your website and with the content that's featured there. So it's really helpful for people to know, you know, are they allowed to repost blog content with credit to you? Are they allowed to um, share quotes that you've offered on your own website? Are they allowed to use your website as an example in like a blog roundup article? Um, so this is really where you get to be king or queen of your castle and make up the rules and let people know what those rules are um, through your terms and conditions. And then finally, I think the the other critical component, obviously, we you mentioned the GDPR in the intro. We can't not have a privacy policy anymore. I mean, it's just you have to have this. This is something that the FTC has always required of people on their websites. And now it's even more important with the European Union enacting these general data protection regulation, I'll just call it the GDPR rules that govern um, what you are doing with people's information and how you're collecting that information and the kinds of things that you have to disclose about your collection and retaining of that information. So, Client contract, terms and conditions, and then the privacy policy. Those are the three things I think everybody needs to have, legally speaking, to be a legit business. Okay, cool. 
Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the Copywriter Underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership? So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community, and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice, again, on those three areas, copywriting, marketing, and mindset, things that you can mark up and you know tear out, put them in your files, save them for whatever, and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground? So I, I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those. So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program. And if you are listening and you do not have your client contract or maybe any of those in place, it's okay. Don't freak out. <laughs> um, we're going to work on that today. But I didn't have a client contract in place for a long time. I was taking work. I, luckily, I had no major issues. I've heard horror stories. But what really was the catalyst for me to get my act together was just that I was charging more. Like I wanted to charge more. I wanted to have these big packages. I wanted to charge you know, 10K for this big launch package. And I just got to the point where I realized, like, if you don't even have a contract and you're, you're quoting these high amounts with clients, like you just, there's so many question marks and so many doubts your client may have if you're not sending over a contract, which they assume you will send over. And so, you know, if you don't feel that urgency to line up the client contract, at least feel the urgency around this could hold you back from raising your rates and feeling really confident when you raise your rates. Um, so I love to hear from you just the benefits of having a client contract because I know there are many. Um, for me, uh, it was confidence, peace of mind. But I'd love to hear from you just why should we have this other than the legal ramifications? Yeah, well, the legal ramifications, those are huge, right? Like I always use the example of a girl who called me and she didn't have a contract. She was This was like a hobby business. She was a photographer. But I mean, this applies to any service-based business. You know, with copywriters, I think it would happen with IP and not what I'm about to tell you. But anyway, so this gal was a, a wedding photographer and she, uh, she went to go photograph her bride. It was like her second or third wedding ever as a lead shooter. And it was in a hotel and the family had hung the dress from a sprinkler in the ceiling. So she took the dress down. She went outside <laughs> to put it in natural light. Yeah. You know where this is going and yeah. <laughs> took some beautiful photos of the dress. She hung the dress up where the family had hung it. And lo and behold, the sprinkler system went off. And when sprinklers go off in hotels, it, it isn't just water. It's like this black gunk. So the dress is now covered in black gunk. And then the sprinklers don't just stop. So about $400,000 worth of damage to the hotel and three soaked layers or floors of the hotel later she and the family were just kind of like sitting there with their hands under their butts thinking, who's responsible for this? And so a contract could have prevented that by putting the liability onto the family for instances like that. So that's where it can really help you. Obviously, business insurance would have been helpful there too. But, um, you know, th those kinds of things can really help you. So if you're a copywriter for someone and um, you're writing something and you accidentally or you intentionally, which happens more than you would think, um, use someone else's content or structure or something like that. And the client gets alleged uh, of, of basically being a copyright infringer. Um, who's going to be responsible for that? So the contract can help alleviate stuff like that. But more importantly, like you said, Kira, I think it's so important to have a contract because it does display that you're a professional. It displays that you have systems in place, which is a great indicator to your clients that their work is going to be done on time and well. Um, it's also an indication that they can trust you. And my favorite thing, because I'm such a list maker, is I love the list making aspect of having a, a contract because 
there's a list on both sides of what you expect from them and what they are obligated to do for you as well. So there's no doubt as to, at least in my templates, I can't speak for anybody else, but in my templates, I really emphasize putting in exact numbers and not just like percentages or, you know, 30 days from the date of booking. So it, it has um, prompts for you to put actual numbers into these places. And I show you how to do that because I think it's really important to be as specific as possible so that there is no ambiguity. Like, you know exactly what money is coming in on what date and how you're getting paid. And the client knows exactly when they need to pay you, how they need to do that, what they're going to be getting, when they can expect their, you know, roughly their first drafts, um, second drafts, like how many revisions are allowed, what is and isn't allowed, when you can be contacted, what your office hours are. Um, And it just really is this nice foundation for setting up boundaries with your client, which are critical for any of you out there who have already found out what boundaries are and that you don't have any. Um, so if, if you're having a, a problem with with clients that are unhappy with your work or um, you know clients that are just too demanding or that just want one more thing, then a contract can really help to clarify those things and serve as a scapegoat so that you can always point back to the contract and you're not the bad guy. The contract is really the bad guy um, because you're like, well, you know, you signed this thing and we said you had two revisions and you've now had five. So we're going to have to start charging you for these extra revisions. It's a lot easier to do that. And then the person's like, oh, dang, I did sign that. than it is to say, hey, um, you know, we usually only do two revisions. We've already given you five. Uh, so we're going to have to start charging you. And then the person's all angry because they're like, well, you haven't charged me yet. Why are you going to charge me now? So I think it's a lot easier to point back to something that's written down and what I would call permanent rather than something that is just kind of um, like how you two have been operating so far. So let's talk a little bit about privacy. You know, we, we mentioned it in the intro and you start, you mentioned uh, GDPR and I, I've got a lot of questions around this and, and a lot of them hinge around, you know, as American businesses or as businesses outside of the EU, you know, what are their responsibilities uh, as far as GDPR goes versus those in the EU? What are the risks? Like, obviously, this is important, and it's probably something that's going to become even more important as other governments do something similar. But could you just kind of walk us through that and and help us navigate this kind of weirdness that's going on right now? Yeah, for sure. And so I've been watching this really closely, obviously. And what's really been interesting is that the solopreneurs and the small business owners have paid way more attention to this than the Googles and the Facebooks and the... That's really um, interesting. The, yeah. the hotel chains and the um, financial institutions. And so the ones that I'm saying should be paying more attention to, or that I thought would pay, be paying more attention to it, those are the ones who this this regulation was really crafted for. It wasn't crafted to come after the small business marketer um, who, you know, is already drowning with a to-do list and, you know, is already having a problem getting seen by more people, right? Like that's, I mean, you guys, we all know, like that's our struggle every day is like, how do we get in front of more people? Um, so just to like ease people's fears, I hope that helps a little bit because it wasn't crafted specifically to come after us that are listening to this podcast. It was crafted to make sure that the the Wells Fargo's and the uh, Marriott's and the hospital and you know the Kaiser Permanentes and the Facebooks and Googles and those kinds of institutions where really sensitive, very specific health or financial information is housed, um, that they're taking care of, of your information. Um, so Obviously, it still does apply. I'm not saying that it's not applicable um, if you meet certain qualifications. So a couple of those qualifications are whether or not your audience is in the EU and you know about that. So for example, if you have like three people that come to your website a year from the EU, it's very likely that this GDPR stuff does not apply to you. If you have uh, one purchase on your shop or of your courses every year, then it's very likely that this does not apply to you. If you have never advertised in any kind of euro or any kind of like EU currency, so the, the British pound or the, the euro, it's very likely that it does or in their, their respective languages. So if you've never intentionally made a Facebook ad in German or in Spanish or Greek or anything like that. So if you haven't done those things that I'm just listing here, it's very likely that this does not apply to you. And so hopefully that can be a sigh of relief for most people out there who are serving a primarily Australian, Canadian or US based audience. 
That being said, like you mentioned, Rob, this is definitely the way that the internet is shifting. So putting aside how I personally feel about this, because I have some very strong opinions about other countries or unions enforcing laws in foreign jurisdictions, I think it sets a really dangerous precedent. But putting my my opinion aside, I think it definitely is the way that things are moving, especially because privacy has been so neglected. And I do think that big companies... So even though I might not like the GDPR personally for my business and for for my clients, I do understand why people are upset and why this regulation is coming into place. And it's because the big companies of the world that have neglected to update their servers or who have neglected to invest in SSL encryption on their sites or who haven't, you know, just failed to basically secure their customers or their patients' assets, um, you know, they're really the ones that have prompted the I guess you could call it need for this regulation. Um, and that's the reason why it's come about and the reason why it's we're just going to get deeper and deeper into this kind of stuff. It's not going to go away. And so even though you know I listed the factors where it may or may not apply to you, even if it doesn't, quote unquote, apply to you today, it may in the future as the US or more likely Canada or Australia, but mostly I think Canada is going to adopt the, the next wave of this first. So when they do that, we will have to be cognizant of it. And so if you're already paying attention to this very, very strict uh, new regulation that came into place, then you're probably in a really good spot. So whenever something comes out from the US or Canada or Australia, et cetera, like you're not going to be as concerned because you've already taken care of that and you know really figured out how to deal with it and move on. And I'm really impressed. I have to say, I'm really impressed with a lot of email service providers. I've noticed Infusionsoft, when I opt out of people's emails, it gives me the option to... Um, like tell me what data Infusionsoft has on me. And then if I want to, if I want that marketer to save or erase my data. And so obviously these email providers are just coming out with it blanketed right now because it's really difficult to tell um, where an email subscriber is accessing or, or is located on a regular basis. But I, I'm really impressed with, with the new software and features that are coming out that are adapting to the regulation and just making it easier for people to comply Cool. So there is no GDPR police that's going to show up at my front door, right? Technically, no. So here's, okay, this is what would really happen. And so I don't, like, I don't want to undermine the fact that this is important and we should pay attention, but I also don't want people to be like shaking in their boots scared because- Right, there's a lot of fear about it. And I feel like I have (laughs) zero, I have no fear about it because I agree with you. I don't think it's targeted at small business owners that are just trying to make $10,000 a month and have like- very small list, but I do want to be, you know, aware of it. So what is the bare minimum I should do as someone who's like, okay, cool, this is happening. I'm not worried about it, but I do need to make sure I'm doing these three things in my business just to to follow. Yeah. Having a privacy policy is a must have, and it must now address certain things um, about the GDPR. So it's no longer enough to just download some generic privacy policy on the internet. You have to have one that's specific to the GDPR. So full disclosure, we have one. I'm not telling you you have to download ours. There's lots of great ones out there. But it definitely has to be tailored to the GDPR if the GDPR applies to you or if you're just scared and you're worried that you might have people visiting you from the EU as you become more visible, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a great start. The second thing to do is to make sure that people understand that they are entering into some kind of marketing or promotional communication. And so there's a lot of attorneys out there on different podcasts, and I won't name names, but they think that um, they've spread this information that's technically true, but it's like the most conservative version. So the way the law works, just FYI, break this down. There's black and then there's white, right? And I I love black and white answers. But unfortunately, the law operates in the middle, in the gray area. So whether something's more black or something's more white or like what shade of gray it is, like no, <laughs> I hate that book, honestly, but um, like no, like. Rob, like, Rob loves that book. It's Oh favorite. my gosh. No, it's horrible writing. How do we start talking about shades of gray? That's, that's crazy. But anyway, I know. You never know what you're going to get out of me. So It's so, more okay. exciting than GDPR though, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the GDPR is kind of in this gray zone. And so what a lot of attorneys are suggesting, and I'm I'm a little less conservative. So full disclosure, if you're like, no, I have to do everything by the book and make sure everything is zipped up and buttoned and perfect, then maybe you don't want to listen to this. But like the black version, like the absolute 
you know, we know this is absolutely fine is to get people to opt in for like a freebie or a content upgrade or your email list. And then you send them one email that includes exactly what you told them you're going to give them. And then from there, you ask them if they would like to receive further marketing communications and actually sign up for your newsletter list. So that's like technically the black answer. But like I said, the law operates in this gray area. So we're not really sure what's okay and what's not because the GDPR has never been very clear about this. And in the, uh, like, what is it, like four months since it's come out, there hasn't been any extra guidance. And so this really remains to be seen and determined. Um, So I think personally, I've just been adding like a checkbox to our marketing communication. So it's like name, email, checkbox, like you can send to receiving marketing communications from us, blah, 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 right? So like that privacy disclaimer, um, what we're, you know, and we link to the, our, our bigger privacy policy there and they sign up. And I'm really okay with that because when we look at what would actually happen, Kira, like you were asking about this, um, I think it's going to operate in a similar way to FTC complaints, which I think people should be way more concerned about than the GDPR, honestly. I see a lot of interesting stuff happening with like sponsored posts, and we can talk about that in a second. So what would happen is someone would have to report you, and you'd probably have to get multiple reports in a very short amount of time. And this is the same way that email complaints happen too, where the FTC would start to take notice of you. So that's how you would finally get onto somebody's radar to see that you're not GDPR compliant. And so if you're not getting these complaints, which I don't even think most people even know how to complain because that hasn't been very well explained, um, then it's just it's not something that I would be freaking out, staying up at night over. But yeah, like you said, Kira, I think there are certain things adding the privacy policy, um, the disclaimer to your opt-ins, and just making sure that you have a way to scrub people's information from your email list if they request to be removed and they are located in the EU or a citizen of the EU. Um, Those three things are really critical if you want to be in compliance with the GDPR. And then, you know, like I said, you can always go back and re-listen to whatever, three minutes ago when I talked about like the absolute black version. If that's the version you want to follow and you want to do that really strict um, email marketing opt-in disclosure, then you can also do that if, if that makes you feel better. No, this is great because we haven't really covered GDPR on our podcast yet. So we feel like we're covering it adequately. And there are other reasons to stay up and stress at night. Usually it's about client projects, but yeah, I, I'd be a little more concerned about the clients. <laughs> um, so let's talk about FTC and what you mentioned reference that what's what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I mean, I don't follow Kim Kardashian, don't shoot me everyone, but um, I know she got in trouble with the FTC last year for failing to disclose things. And I noticed shortly after Instagram came out with a feature where you could add that a post was sponsored. So instead of a location right underneath your um, username, it says like sponsored by whatever, and you put the sponsor in there. I see a lot of people that do like hashtag ad. Um, And so, you know, we see this on Instagram. Um, So this is something to be mindful of, that you need to follow adequate disclosures according to the FTC. Um, If you are doing sponsored posts, you need to make sure that everybody knows that there's an affiliate link or it's a sponsored post, you're being paid in some way. If it's not a very obvious disclosure, then it's not sufficient. So it, it just needs to be obvious to the person who could be scrolling through your Instagram feed or your blog. Um, But more than anything, honestly, guys, I see this on sales pages all the time. Like sales pages are scary to me because they make all kinds of claims and they make they they highlight the best examples and then they don't have any kind of um, disclosure about the fact that these are not typical results and that's where you can really get into trouble if somebody were to report you to the FTC or um, the the last place I see this a lot just FYI is um, when people are sending emails like you have a newsletter and the address at the bottom is like some random address that's not yours or you're like I know one blogger who signed up she exported all of her LinkedIn contacts and then imported them to her email list like if you're doing stuff like that those are not okay practices. But yeah, I think especially for copywriters, you really need to be mindful of what is going on your sales pages for your clients and making sure that if you do have those like outrageous, and that's awesome that clients got such great results. But like, if you do have those more, um, I don't want to call them like hyperbolic, that's not the right word, but like those really awesome testimonials that are like, I went from zero to $100,000 in 30 days because of, you know, Kira and Rob's program. 
if there's something like that on a sales page, it also needs to be accompanied by some kind of disclosure, not a disclaimer, but a disclosure that these are not typical results. So yes, like this person worked really hard, you were part of their journey, but um, you know, there were other factors going on between making zero to $100,000 in 30 days. You know, and while your program may have been a great contributor and led the way and given them the framework, um, they still had to do some kind of work. And so just disclosing that, you know, it wasn't just like they bought the program and then magically they had this result is really important. So yeah, let me ask about some specific wording there, because like you said, you know, we don't see a lot of it in a lot of the sales stuff that we do. So do you need to use the words results not typical? Or is it sufficient to say, you know, this is an atypical case, or this is, you know, only one of our students, you know, uh, had this kind of result, like, how much massaging of those kinds of terms? Because as you know, if we're writing a sales letter, and you say results not typical, that's almost like saying, well, yeah, this was a, you know, a unicorn, and you're not going to get that result. And that's also not the message that we want to send in a sales page. Right, exactly. Yeah, I know. And this is where lawyers totally suck. I get it. Um, <laughs> because I mean, I'm, so, I'm an online marketer. Killing the party. Yeah, I, I, I have to do. And this is why I get it. Like I'm in there. I'm, I'm doing launches. I'm writing copy. We have sales pages. And so um, the interesting thing is, I don't know if you guys know about Frank Kern. He, I think he started as a copywriter, but he did an experiment and he's been testing this for the last five years. And he said that having a disclosure on a sales page is hasn't affected his conversion rates. So interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, I don't know how true or not it is. He didn't really go into detail or, you know, like state empirical facts, which I really love because <laughs> I'm a nerd like that. But um, but that's what he said. So take it at face value. But I think a great way to do this without killing your sales is to have it on the page. So it doesn't need to be after every example. It just has to be somewhere obvious and um, available for the public. So you could have your great testimonials. And then in the section underneath that, there's some kind of disclosure that says these results, these results are not typical. Here's what you can actually expect. Um, and you, I mean, there's definitely ways, like you said, Rob, to massage this and bring people back into the fold and let them know that, um, yes, these are exceptional case studies and we would love to feature you here too. And, you know, there are certain things that they did that, um, you know, the program inspired them to do that they did on their own. You're just basically telling people that this is going to take work, which is already probably in your refund policy anyway. It's like, you know, 14 day refund, but only if you show me your work and blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of a spin. I like to think of it as a spin on that. If you have something like that in your refund policies already, where you're just, you're telling people like, this is what they can expect. This is exactly what your goal for them to get out of the program is. And that the the case studies and the testimonials on this page are people that had really good results. And that's why you decided to feature them. And that, you know, this isn't like the typical person that's coming out of your, your program. So if you do it well, can help to build trust with the purchaser because they're like, oh, okay, like this person's being upfront and honest. I also, I'm just like an incredibly irreverent, um, I don't know what you would call it, but I'm just, I try to invite a lot of humor <laughs> and irreverence into my sales pages. And so, you know, I'll have something like disclosure, by the way, these totally suck, but I have to tell you that blah, 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 blah. So, you know, you can do things like that. It doesn't have to be like a textbook disclosure that you download from somewhere or you you take from somebody else. And, and adapt to be your own without changing much. And it's really boring and kind of dry. Okay. So just one more quick clarification on that. You're saying that putting that kind of a disclosure on a terms and conditions page is not sufficient or putting it somewhere else, you know, on the, on the guarantee page is not sufficient. It needs to be on the actual page that talks, that makes the claims to make the FTC happy. Exactly. Okay. I will add that I think that adds, um, you know, that helps with trust anyway. So I'm just thinking through why this worked for Frank Kern too. I think it's just when you see that, I would be more likely to trust that person behind the sales page uh, than if they don't include that. And maybe you just don't think about it if you don't see it. But as soon as you see it, you know that they're following some type of rules. They, you know, they respect um, the testimonials enough to be really transparent about it. So I, I see how that could actually help with conversions. Yeah, and I think Amy Porterfield, I, I've seen some of her sales pages. I think she does this pretty well, um, which, you know, 
<laughs> isn't surprising. But yeah, I, I, I think there's just definitely tactful ways to do this that like it's part of your sales page. And I, I think that's where people get freaked out about legal stuff. And they're like, oh, this has to be super serious and buttoned up. And then it reads as like this weird like alien on your sales page versus the awesome other text that's there and copy. And it's just like, it doesn't fit, you know, and it, it, of course it stands out like a sore thumb. People are really into it. They're reading the sales page. They're going through, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they get to this like horrible legal paragraph that's super formal and stuffy. And they're like, oh, you know, and so I, that, of course that would, that would turn people off. But as for anything else, I don't, I don't think so. No if you can be creative about it. And I know there are other changes you need to make um, in order to um, speak to the guidelines too, like even changing uh, the verbiage from saying, hey, you can do this with my product to saying you could do this with my product. Like this is possible. I'm not guaranteeing that you can do this. Some changes that I've made over over the last few years. Uh, Do you have any type of sales page template that addresses um, some of these FTC guidelines and, and mentions, you know, just all these terms that we need, the disclosures, and maybe even the language that we should be aware of when writing a sales page? <laughs> I I don't right now, but that's actually something that within the past week and like this conversation has cemented it. I'm going to throw it in with our copywriter contract template, and then we'll sell it separately too for a lower price point if someone you know already has a contract they like. But yeah, so you can expect that to be up on our shop in probably the next month or so, <laughs> probably before this podcast comes out. So I know we we need to wrap soon, but um, I do want to ask you about something. This is a selfish question for me, um, but what do you recommend around subcontractor contracts? Because uh, a lot of our copywriters are growing or working with subcontractors, and I know I haven't set anything in place that with my contractors on projects, other copywriters that I hire. So what do you recommend just to help even keep those relationships and those projects smooth and everything good and everybody happy along the way? Um, What would you suggest? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing here that stands out is the copyright aspect. So one of the things that I think a lot of people forget is that when you're hiring people, it's not automatically considered a work for hire. It needs to actually state that in order for the work to become yours or um, and or there needs to be some kind of copyright assignment in the contract template. So it says explicitly or sorry, I keep saying contract template, but in your contract with your contractors. So it, it, it would say something explicitly about how any and all works created by the con- subcontractor for the company, which is presumably you or me or whoever is hiring the subcontractor, um, any of those works that are created in the course of you know your engagement with them are expressly assigned to your company. So those are the, the that's like the biggest thing that stands out. Just to make sure that you have uh, not like you, Kara, but just you guys listening. That any of you who are hiring subcontractors out have all the rights and access to the materials that are created for you on behalf of the clients you're serving, even if you aren't creating those yourself. So for example, any kind of checklists or standard operating procedures or uh, the actual work product and deliverables themselves, those are all really, really important in my opinion to get not just the access to, which it sounds like you have now, but also the full rights to use and then to have that And that way you can either transfer it to the client if that's what the client's chosen and paid for, or you can keep it yourself. I don't know what you would do as a copywriter. (laughs) I guess you could reuse it as a a template and just take out their pertinent details if they decide not to buy the copyright. But um, copyright's like a whole nother conversation. So I hope I'm not confusing anyone. Yeah. And obviously there's all kinds of things we could ask about trademarks, copyright, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, we're running out of time. So I'm going to shift totally change the subject here and ask you about abstract art. I think you're a fan. <laughs> Tell me what it is about abstract art that you like and you know what uh, you know what does that do for you personally? Oh my gosh. Uh, Britt Bass can take all my money. I love that girl. She is my one of my favorites. You've probably actually you can buy one of the paintings I bought from her is on a May Design notebook now. So you can buy that. It's called the ba- uh yeah, it's the Basslet. So, um I don't know. I just I used to think that art had to be like really formal and uh, like show something and I would never buy it unless it like was a horse or, you know, some an eagle or a hawk or like it had to be something. And then I just like I was 
I can't remember where I was. I may have been in her shop in Roswell, Georgia. And I was just like, I'm going to buy this. And I did. And it was the best purchase, like, just for me selfishly that I've ever made. And I was so happy I did it. So ever since then, I've really tried to incorporate a lot of abstract art into, um, you know, like any kind of branding that I've done. So the contract shop, we just switched our site and we're slowly adding elements back in. But it has a lot of like swashes and I, I want people to feel like I'm throwing watercolor at them and like paint. And I just, I love that like, like messy, but it all comes together feel. Like anthropology is great at cultivating that rather than something that's like more clean and prim and proper like Joanna Gaines, who I also love, but you know, I'm like more of like a, a rough around the edges kind of design person. So yeah, I feel like I'll know I made it in life when I can just buy art freely in galleries and just shop for art. I'll <laughs> be like, yeah, I made it. Life is good. Um, the velvet painting of Elvis hanging over my couch doesn't count. No, Rob. <laughs> you haven't made it yet. Sorry. But it glows in the dark. It's, uh, yeah. Um, all right. So can we hire you or work with you individually? Or is it purely like templates? What is available to us if people are in love with you and just want to work with you and get everything straight in their business? Yeah, I know. We didn't even talk about I So I have two different businesses. I have the contract shop, which obviously sells the templates. And then I have a law firm called Scalera IP Law. And so if you want to work with me, you can email me at christine.scaleralaw.com and we can get you connected to one of my attorneys. Um, we're actually a firm. It's not just me anymore. So yeah. So if they want to work with me, they can go there. They can go to scalaralaw.com. Um, or, you know, I think the best place, honestly, though, to find me is the contractshop.com. If you can just remember that. And, you know, I get inquiries all the time for legal services there anyway. So if you can just remember that, I think that's probably the easiest place to access. But my goal is to make it like so easy for people that are on the contract shop to find the answer to their question via our blog. We've been blogging twice a week for the last two and a half years. So we have a lot of great content and free articles um, or, you know, through one of our lesser end products or even through a template, which, you know, I always say is like every time I hate doing custom contract templates because obviously I can do it, but it's like reinventing the wheel every time. And then it only gets put through the ringer with one person versus like, 200 people that I've bought our copywriter contract template and 50 of them have given us feedback and told me what needs to be fixed and updated and changed. And this language could be better and blah, blah, blah. So I love the templates. And um, <laughs> I actually just switched from a custom website, a custom Shopify site to a template for this exact reason, because I mean, it's basically like crowdsource development. It's, it's unbeatable. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of resources out there um, that I try to provide. And then, you know, I, I always tell people like, if I'm not a good fit for you, because I'm more expensive now than I used to be. Here's all these other attorneys that might be a better fit for you. So yeah, don't don't be shy. I'm, I love talking to people, um, connecting with new people. And if you're a good copywriter, please reach out to me and tell me that you want to work with me because I am always looking for somebody. <laughs> I feel like these days. This has been great. And I do feel like we should bring you back uh, six months or whenever and just even talk about the business growth that you've had. And I love the way that you've built your authority. And I think we can really dig into that too. So there's a lot to cover, uh, but this has been really helpful. I've learned a lot. There's a lot I need to work on in my business. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Christina. Thank you guys. I'm so grateful that you brought me on. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.